carbon dioxide. It's in the air we breathe in. It's even more in the air we breathe out. By measuring that expired carbon dioxide, what can we learn about how our patients are doing? That's the question for this episode of Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon, pediatric trauma medical director, and your host for this short podcast series. Our experts in CO2 are Drs. John Anderson and Matthew Greer. John is a trauma surgeon and professor of surgery at the University of California, Davis, and Matt is an emergency medicine doctor and assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, Davis. Here we go. So, John and Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. Matt, you're one of our emergency doctors. John, one of our trauma surgeons. And today we're going to be talking about something that I actually know very little about because I think it's still finding its way into what we know about pediatric surgery, which is carbon dioxide, which is actually something we know a lot about. Anyone who's done anything in, in physiology or medicine knows about carbon dioxide. But more than just what comes out of your lungs as a product of respiration, it's now being used as a diagnostic tool in all sorts of different ways. And uh, Matt, I know that you've done a lot of work in this in the emergency department. Can you maybe just give us sort of an introduction into the role of CO2 in not just respiration, but the practice of medicine? Yeah, absolutely. Carbon dioxide is kind of like the second half of the coin when you talk about like respiration and the ability for like oxygen to get into the tissue and then, you know, create the ATP that your body needs to function. And then CO2 is kind of the, the, the product that's given off. And by measuring the CO2 that the patient is able to breathe out, you kind of get a, a sense of kind of what the body's metabolism is regarding that hemostasis. Originally, you know, being able to measure carbon dioxide was kind of like in the realm of kind of anesthesia to make sure patients were continuing to breathe, right? And that you were actually breathing for them if you had taken out their respiratory center completely adequately. And as the machines got better and better and smaller and smaller, we were able to do that more at the bedside. And I think in the field of emergency medicine, it is it has taken off in the last like 20 years, especially in talking about certain things, monitoring patients who are kind of stuporous and whether or not like they're breathing enough with medications. If we're doing procedural sedation, that's kind of one thing. It's been used in certain instances to like kind of peek at what the patient's PaCO2. So like when you're talking about like a blood gas analysis, what their CO2 would be, it is a window into what that would be before you've ever even poked a needle into the patient. And so like uh, we see this sometimes with patients with heart failure or DKA. It has some application or, or, or probably the biggest part of the application is in confirming that you have like airway placement when you go to intubate somebody and then during cardiac arrest in ensuring that you have return of spontaneous circulation. So it kind of gives us this big window into whether or not the ventilation and respiratory mechanics are working in a patient. And John, you've done some work in capnography, which is not quite the same thing. Can you sort of describe how and title CO2 and capnography are different? Most of the entitled CO2 devices that we use measure exhaled uh, CO2 as a function of time. And then they just measure the number at the end of the uh, exhalation and call that the entitled CO2. Some of the work I had done was using what's called a volumetric capnography. And, and really simply, you're measuring CO2 uh, of the exhaled breath 
as a function of volume of exhaled breath. The curves are similar, but the information that you could get is a little bit more robust with the volumetric. It's almost as if you could consider the entitled CO2 that we use normally as being somewhat qualitative in this uh, volumetric capnography as giving you quantitative information. Basically, like end tidal CO2 is giving you a picture of the amount of CO2 that's breathed out at a sort of at a specific time point, whereas you're talking about curves that go across like the full volume of exhalation. Exactly. And then with that kind of quantitative nature, you can tease out some of the uh, different factors and kind of pathologies. I had first become interested in it for detection of pulmonary emboli. And this was back in the 90s. I'll have to admit, I I hadn't really thought of a lot of this stuff for uh, quite some time. So I was somewhat surprised when I was asked to talk about it. You get CO2 on your resume one time and people yeah. calling you two decades later. Yeah. I think he brings up a great point, though, is like we are only as good as our of the way that these measurements are being made, right? And anybody who's been at the bedside and seen a pulse ox that comes up and it says, or the nurse comes and grabs you and says, the pulse ox is like 80%. And you go to look at it and it's that the patient, it, it's hanging off the bed. If you're not able to kind of look up and see that you have a decent waveform or that you know what you're actually measuring, right? And like, I think he brings up a great point. When we talk about end tidal CO2, I think that that you need to know that you're at the end of that exhalation breath. It's the end of that breath that matters. One of the things that I like to kind of like how to make you a Jedi pearl that I tell the residents is like, you can, after intubating a patient, look up at your end tidal CO2 waveforms and know whether or not you have a patient, if you just intubated like an asthmatic or something like that, if you need to give them a, you know, a longer expiratory pause or not, because you'll see the shark finning. And that's kind of like, Kind of, I was expecting to talk about this a little bit later in the show, but you know, I think that's a great point is that you have to know what it is you're measuring and that you're measuring the CO2 that is returning to the device from the alveoli at the end of the breath. And so as he mentioned pulmonary embolism, which is obviously like you are having a VQ mismatch because of the amount of blood flow to one of the lungs. That lung theoretically is still getting oxygenated or ventilated from the, the ventilator. And so the end tidal CO2 that you're going to get is going to be a mixture of the lung that gets fully perfused and the lung that's, or the part of the lung that's not being perfused as much. Right. Yeah. And so you're, you're measuring a difference there with dead space. So if you imagine the air goes down the trachea, down the bronchus, and then there's some part of lung that is just not getting any blood flow, that air is not going to exchange gases in that part of the lung. And then when the exhalation happens, that air still had a very, very, very low amount of CO2, atmospheric CO2 being like, you know, 0.0 whatever, compared to the percentage of CO2 in the blood, which under normal physiologic circumstances, the, the partial pressure dissolved would be about 40, you know, and so you're going to have errors in sampling. But I think that by looking at the errors and knowing what the errors or the, the potential pitfalls are, will help you kind of differentiate the, the different things. Yeah. So like, let's talk about that. Cause I think just, how you measure this, right? People talk about, oh, entitled CO2 and it's X or Y, right? Or it's, you know, changing. But so much of that depends on being sure you're measuring the right thing, right? Because like you could have no entitled CO2 because there's no ventilation going on, or you could have no entitled CO2 because your endotracheal tube is not in the trachea, right? 
Or you could have end tidal CO2, like no end tidal CO2 because you're not measuring the right thing. You've hooked it up to their nasal cannula. Or you don't have enough bleed through oxygen in the nasal cannula type, or it's not fully plugged into the machine. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the way that they have to like screw these in, but it's it's kind of like a lure lock mechanism into the actual monitor. Most of them, every, every let me let me preface that. Everywhere I've been, <laughs> it has been a lure lock kind of connection point. And as I'm sure you guys have seen when people connect an IV sometimes, infrequently, but it can happen where it gets kind of kinked to one side, you're not getting a good thing. If they get wet, that's one of the number one ways that I've seen them kind of fail is if patients that have like significant amounts of uh, secretions or blood in the tube or anything like that, the filter on it can get wet and then it won't actually measure what you like the amount that you think you're measuring. John, did you want to talk about like how exactly to measure it? Or I know the the devices that connect to it and stuff like that. My impression is it's, it's, it's like an IR spec. Oh, you mean for the CO2 uh, measurement itself? Yeah. Yeah. Like the actual device. The CO2 absorbs at a certain wavelength. When you have a patient on the ventilator, you could just uh, have the uh, wavelength measured across the exhaled breath. And it's a kind of a direct measurement. Whereas in the spontaneous breathing patient, you sort of have to sample it. And in that sampling, as you were saying, depending on how much volume is in and trained, uh, can be misleading. So like bleed in, bleed in oxygen, like everywhere that I've been, the devices we've had require a small amount of oxygen to actually go like, like one or two liters through the nasal cannula prong. If it's a non-invasive type of end tidal CO2 monitoring device, I mean, theoretically you kind of have to clear it in order for it to be able to sample. And I know that there's a difference between like side port sampling and inline sampling. My impression, especially at where, where we work is that even on the ventilator, it's still a side port sample, meaning that the end tidal CO2 is connected kind of like similar to the way uh, the Ballard suction's connected, right? Like it's in, it's in its own little like part of the tube and it's kind of taking a little bit of the bleed off. And going back to what I was saying before, you have to understand that there's an amount of dead space between where that sample port is all the way to the actual end alveoli, which is why you get in the very beginning, this kind of gradually rising increase in entitled CO2 and assuming that you're able to sample the actual end alveolar CO2, that will eventually plateau off at a pretty consistent rate. Like so many things in medicine, right? It's a, it's really simple in the textbooks because you're like, oh yeah, it's like the, the end tidal CO2 is the X and that you, you just assume that number's right. But there's, there's a few things you're going to have to do to be sure that, that what you're looking at is accurate. If you walk into a room and are just looking at the end tidal CO2 and, and the number doesn't make sense, or you just want to be sure that what you're looking at is real. Like what, what are you looking for? I think that waveform is one of the things. There's a lot that you get when you walk into the room and you kind of can like feel what the patient is like, right? So if I walk into a room and a patient's breathing, you know, 30 times a minute with what looked to be like one liter breaths, like they're just really huffing along, right? And my end tidal CO2 is abnormal in one direction or another, like that can point me to different disease processes. And so like, I'm looking at that as like the starting point. You know, if they're looking like they're taking like one liter breaths, like for instance, in a trauma, like you have an agitated patient who looks like they're taking these one liter breaths and all this other stuff, you would do your primary trauma survey. So, you know, you would assume you would find like a pneumothorax or something like that. But, you know, like, let's say there's like some weird, they've had thoracotomy before or something like that. They have scarring to the anterior lungs or something. And they have like a a posterior, you know, pneumothorax that's really irritating them or something like that. Like I could imagine a situation where you would see that kind of a discrepancy 
C and their end tidal CO2 compared to their respiration. But to get back to your point, how do I know that I'm measuring what I think I'm measuring? I would expect the end tidal CO2 with each breath to kind of rise, go up to a plateau and then come back down. Given the same volume of breath from second to second, I would assume that the end tidal CO2 should be around the same amount, right? Like we can get changes in end tidal CO2, but they happen as we change the minute ventilation. So if the patient takes like a 500 milliliter breath four times in a row, assuming they're at equilibrium before that, right? You're not generating more CO2 immediately in that second. So I assume that that number is the same. So if I'm getting numbers that are like entitled CO2 of 10, entitled CO2 of 30, entitled CO2 of 7, entitled CO2 of 45, something's wrong with the way we're measuring that. Either the patient is being stimulated and not you know, taking little micro breaths, it's not seated on their mouth appropriately, your bleed-in is not enough. You want to get kind of a reliable continuous number. The same way you would look at kind of pulse ox or even heart rate, right? Like if you look up at the heart rate monitor, you notice your, your QRS is flat, right? Like you're not seeing anything, but the machine's pointing out that their heart rate's at like 140. You're like, well, wait a second, let's make sure we have the leads on right, that we're not sampling the bed, stuff like that. Do they have V-fib, but they're like sitting up and talking to you, telling you they feel fine, right? Yeah. Like you have to put that all in context. We're not measuring the cumulative amount, like the, the, the actual like quantitative amount to the level that like John was talking about. But like, I do put a lot of faith in my waveforms. I do happen to work at another site where the only end tidal CO2 that we can get is plugged into a CPR, like a Zoll defibrillator device. And it just spits out a number. In those instances, I guess it's better than nothing because usually if we have that device out, we're doing, you know, resuscitation on like a cardiac arrest patient. And so there's some benefit in knowing that that number is above that amount. But I think that to use it really, really to kind of like pick up on it, I think the the waveforms are nice. John, you're one of our trauma surgeons. And so, you know, for these bad traumas that come in, you know, as the attending surgeon, you're going to be standing kind of down at the foot of the bed, looking up at the patient, looking at the monitor, sort of your responsibility is to sort of be synthesizing all of these data points that are coming in. Can you talk a little bit about how you've incorporated uh, end tidal CO2 into your assessments and how much stock do you put in it and how does it fit into that algorithm for you? My comment of uh, feeling a little bit guilty having been asked to speak on this and that as it works out logistically, it's not a endpoint that I'm frequently uh, given. Now, having said that, if you ask, do I think it's helpful? I do. And I think we'll get into this a little bit further, but Matthew sort of alluded to it uh, early. A lot of things that are bad that can happen to you will result in a low entitled CO2. There's information even dating back to the late 80s on the efficacy of CPR and outcomes just based on the initial entitled CO2. And then there's a whole host of different shock states uh, that will uh, result in alterations So getting to your point in the trauma patient, if you had somebody coming in and they were a low entitled CO2 and it was a waveform or whatnot uh, that you could believe, I think you could take that as a a representation that they may have a poor perfusion and a a shock state. It's not particularly useful as a single reading, right? What it's useful as is is trends. So Mac, talk a little bit about, you know, where you've used entitled CO2 and, and how it's been useful, what, what you can and can't see with it. What, what are some of the sort of classic uses for it? Assuming that you're, you know, you've confirmed now that you're getting a good waveform that the machine is plugged in properly. Like what, what's the utility? The most literature that I am aware of for where entitled CO2 has become like what in the, you know, the ER world, like 
I've sat in on faculty meetings at different institutions where we have said, this is a standard for our patients for, for X, right? In order to get the new, the new device or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the two places that it has the most literature backing is in monitoring for procedural sedation. That's an instance where you're going to be giving medications with the attempt to kind of get into this quasi unconscious state where patients, you know, are not able to feel their hip reduction, their knee reduction, their whatever. And at the same time, we, do, we don't want to call it complete anesthesia because we're not doing it in an operating room under all of the you know coordinated everything. And so before my time, a lot of what was being done was you'd say, oh, well, we put a pulse ox on the patient. And as long as they're O2 satisfying, then everything's good. And the problem is, as you know, anybody who's gone to like intubate people or, you know, put people into this state is that you can actually have your oxygenation stay at a relatively high, your pulse ox will remain high long after you've become apneic, you know, depending on what your pre-ox, your pre-oxygenation plan was, it can be anywhere from, you know, a couple minutes to in, in brain death exams up in the ICU, we actually pre-oxygenate these people with a lot of O2 and do an apnea test. And that apnea test can go 15, 20 minutes without having to have the patient desat without them taking a breath because their metabolic demand is just so low. So to back up, I think that's, that's a, a part where the ER world, and I think anybody who does like procedural sedation, like that's pretty standard is that you want to know when your patient goes apneic very early. And so it's measuring their respiration. I think the other gold standard for for end tidal CO2 that I'm aware of is in cardiac arrest care. And I think that both of these examples kind of give two tales of what end tidal CO2 is able to measure. In my first example, what I'm telling you is that end tidal CO2 is measuring your actual respirations. And in this case, what the patient's minute ventilation, like in terms of what they're able to do, right? Like if their end tidal CO2 drops to like zero, you assume they haven't taken a breath. And if it's in a setting where we are not breathing for them, then that's either bad, we need to start breathing for them, or we've overdosed them on medications. If it's in a setting where they're already intubated and their end tidal CO2 drops after they've been you know, on the ventilator, then we have to think about like, where is that CO2 going? Is Are we getting adequate breaths? The ventilator, you know, is it then alarming, 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 and people keep hitting in the alarm and their patient's getting five ML breaths and you don't realize that they didn't actually deliver a tidal volume. And so that's one side of the coin is end tidal CO2 tells you how much CO2 is going from that out alveoli into your monitoring device. I think the other side of that coin, which is, which is exemplified in the, in the cardiac arrest care, is it's measuring really your metabolic output, or at least the metabolic output that reaches the other side of the alveoli, the blood side, right? And so if you have a patient who has cardiac standstill, there is no blood being delivered to that alveoli. So as soon as I've given, you know, two or three tidal volumes, that alveoli is cleared of its CO2 because there's no more trains coming to the alveoli to deliver more more CO2. So in somebody with cardiac arrest, we can put end tidal CO2 and measure how good chest compressions are being done, right? We want to be at least above 10 millimeters mercury. And as you're doing that, you will like, let's say you get spontaneous circulation again, return of spontaneous circulation, that end tidal CO2 should jump above 20. And it's noticeable. I mean, it is all of a sudden, like, you'll see that and you'll be like, huh, you know, as the attending standing in the back of the room, you're like, I bet you the next time we do a pulse check, there's going to be some type of a perfusing rhythm in this instant. And again, I use those two examples, because I think they give you kind of two sides of that 
of that alveoli coin, if you will, right? You have to have CO2 being delivered to the alveoli and you have to have the CO2 being removed from the lung. And so not to get too deep into the rabbit hole, but any disease process I, I mentioned in the very beginning, any disease process that changes the amount of CO2 that is in the blood is going to be reflected on the amount of CO2 shown up on your end tidal CO2. So you asked me like in an ER setting, like, where do I think it's valuable? I think it's, it's, it's one of the things that within, you know, 30 seconds of the patient showing up, my nurses have gotten a pulse ox, they've gotten tele leads on the patient, we have the blood pressure cuff going off. If we have the end tidal CO2 on, it's one more piece of information that is in line with those pieces of information. If a patient came in, they were tachycardic and hypotensive as a trauma patient, they have a gaping wound. EMS says there's a lot of blood on the field. You're not waiting to see whether or not, you know, I mean, I mean, you guys would never use a hemoglobin to determine to give blood, right? Like you're using other pieces of information to make that point. And I think that it's the same with the end tidal CO2. If I have an, not to steer too far from the trauma world, but if I have an asthmatic patient who's in my ED and I slap end tidal CO2 on them and they're up at like, you know, 65, 70, I know that this is somebody who's struggling because that end tidal CO2 is probably correlating to a PaCO2 of at least 6580, right? And like, if you have a patient who comes in, like, let's say that same shock patient, the trauma patient has a bleeding wound, they're tachycardic, they're hypotensive, and their end tidal CO2 is low, it's like 20, then I'm worried that that patient is in profound shock, right? Because as they're more shocky, their pH is going to drop, they're going to have a impetus to breathe off more, and they've been exhaling a lot in order to drive that down. So I think it gives you a window before any blood work comes back, before you have to have a special lab, before the blood can clot in the tubes or the nurse can have a problem getting the IV. I think it gives you just that one more piece of information, but you absolutely cannot hang your hat on any of that. Yeah. So it's like you're using it at multiple points, right? So you're you're using it to establish that your endotracheal tube is in a good place, right? Because you're going to look for CO2 there. You're looking to see if your CPR is good. And then once you have a sort of a number, you can titrate it, right? Is it too low? Is it too high? Like what, what's the underlying process and that's, I think, probably where you can sort of like have those Jedi moves that you talk about, right? Like so impress good. your friends and colleagues with your ability to, to diagnose something based off of CO2 tracing that otherwise, you know, requires a much more invasive study. Absolutely. I think, you know, the rebreathing on a vent will show up as like a continuous escalation in the baseline of the untitled CO2. Like that only goes on for so long before you start getting other problems. Like you're literally getting a decrease in the minute ventilation, a decrease in the volume, depending on if you're, you know, volume or pressure support. But in thinking about this too, I think one of the uses that came up is funny. You emailed me, I think like two days after, I think it was Rod Fontenet and I were on and Rod's one of our other ED critical care people. I don't know what the situation, why we were both in the recess room at the same time, because that's not always the case. I was possibly doing like a CTICU shift or something, but we had a patient or there was a patient who was a trauma patient with a head injury. And the question was, they're, they're, you know, unconscious, intubated, we're doing all the things to protect the brain, right? But we don't have an ABG yet. And regulating the actual pH in those patients and the PaCO2 in order to decrease the amount of swelling is important, right? And so what, what do you use in order to make the best initial 
minute ventilation selection on the ventilator, right? Like, so you're going to choose something that like makes sense for the patient's height. And this thing came up where it was like, okay, if you're end tidal CO2, you've intubated this head injury patient, they either have an obvious wound, right? Or they've just gotten back from the CT scanner, but you know, there's a head injury, you know, you want to be protective, you're giving mannitol, you're doing all these other things, but you want to make sure that you're not blowing their CO2 down too much, or that you're not allowing it to get too high. And so in that instance, I think you're on good ground if your end tidal CO2 is high. So if that patient's end tidal CO2 is 60, I absolutely would start increasing my minute ventilation to get that down. I want that end tidal CO2 to be somewhere around 35 to 40, right? If the end tidal CO2 is 20, I have a little bit more of a pause before changing it because of all of the things I mentioned before. If you get blood in the airway and you end up blocking off some of the alveoli, you're going to get a VQ mismatch, right? Where you're delivering blood to parts of the lungs, but then you're not actually sending CO2 over. And so I hesitate when the CO2 number is low to pause the ventilator or to extend to give the patient a lower minute ventilation in order to get to that 35 to 40 because if your end tidal CO2 is going to be off, it's probably going to be abnormally low compared to PaCO2, but I use it in that situation, right? So you have a head injury patient, their end tidal CO2 is 60. I know that I want their PaCO2 to be somewhere around 40, 60 is too high, and so I'll blow off more. Conversely, you get that ABG back and your end tidal CO2 or your PaCO2 ends up being 20, you're going to slow down their respiratory rate so that you don't overbreathe them so that you don't end up getting into this downward spiral where all of a sudden you have to breathe at a minute ventilation of 20 just to prevent them from herniating. Right. John, like it, it, it sounds to me as though my takeaway from this is like that the end tidal CO2 and the role of CO2 is if you're measuring it in isolation or using it as a, as a guiding point, that it's a a pretty sensitive measure for an aberration, right? Like it's going to catch if like the CO2 is zero, it's going to catch if the CO2 is, is really high, but maybe like you got to be a little careful in assuming that it's a specific measure, right? That like, it'd be hard for you to have a artificially high CO2 reading. It, it wouldn't be hard given the nature of the system to have an artificially low one. That's correct. To follow up with what Matthew was just saying with that patient with the head injury, what you're wanting to do is target your ventilation to a arterial CO2. He's corrected. If the end tidal CO2 is high, the arterial CO2 is going to be high. The unfortunate thing is if the end tidal CO2 is low, the arterial CO2 might be low, but it also may be that you just didn't have good alveolar uh, perfusion, so you're not going to have that entitled CO2 reflected. I mean, so anything that decreased uh, a shock state, if you have decreased uh, alveolar perfusion, your entitled CO2 is going to be low. So if you are under CPR, your entitled CO2 is low because you don't have very good uh, alveolar perfusion. Uh, the same is for blood loss or any other number of uh, shock states. Now, if your internal CO2 could also be low because of a low mixed uh, venous CO2. See, so uh, as Matthew was saying, in the low entitled uh, CO2, you've got to differentiate those uh, uh, two uh, uh, variables. And you could be wrong. And so he said, well, I would collect additional information before I made a, a change, but I would act quickly if the entitled CO2 was high because I know that I'm hypoventilating. Right. There's kind of, there's one way you can get a high value 
in a lot of ways that you can get a, a low value. Okay. That's good. Well, this has been so helpful. Thank you both so much for helping me understand and all of us understand, you know, where this is useful, where it isn't. You know, it certainly seems as though it is like the hot new trend that you're seeing a lot of people talking about. And I think what I've come away with is a sense that it can be an incredibly useful tool, but you have to be really sure that you are both hooking it up correctly and interpreting the results correctly with a broad differential for like why the numbers and the waveforms might look the way they do. I think you're seeing a lot of push because in rural areas, it is something that has multiple uses, right? And it does not rely on other people to draw blood, a lab to be open, and you are able to do kind of a lot of differentials. And like I said, it gives you that window into what the physiology of the blood gas of the patient might be. And so I think you're seeing a big push from the ER side to get these devices. Anytime that you would ever think about like, is an acid state occurring, I think there's somebody who wants to use ensile CO2 to kind of see if that's happening. Yeah, <laughs> Whether or right. not it's going to be perfect, I think that it's it's just more information. I really like the way that Matthew has kind of articulated the, the two big categories of the use. And as I was listening to him, he was using it, one, just to assess whether the patient was ventilating. And that was when they were being sedated. And sort of uh, an anecdotal recent case that we had is a, a patient that was being observed and was becoming more confused. And there was a question of whether it was due to the head injury, uh, narcotics, uh, drug reaction, or just the patient was hypoventilating. And uh, ultimately, it was that the patient uh, was CO2 narcosis, an entitled CO2 would have made that diagnosis really quickly. You would have seen a very high end tidal CO2 and you would have known that the patient was inadequately uh, uh, ventilated. And as he says, as you're sedating, you can monitor uh, the end tidal and it's extremely helpful just to assess the uh, ventilation because the pulse oximeter, if you rely on that, is going to lead you astray. The second big category that I was uh, hearing Matthew talk about, and I completely agree with, is uh, uh, that of assessment of uh, shock states and anything that decreases the perfusion to your alveoli. And there's both prognostic as well as information that will lead you to uh, ongoing care. There's a whole body of literature from a variety of uh, uh, states for that. I think, you know, we use it very frequently in inebriated patients. And there's definitely been a few patients where we don't want to have to intubate somebody and take their airway unless it's necessary, right? And I think that it's really easy for the patients who are really obviously going to need to be intubated, right? Like those ones are easy. Nobody ever loses sleep over that. It's these patients who come in and like, the nurse will come get you and say, hey, doc, this patient's, you know, they're not really responding to me. And you go in and, you know, you kind of wake them up and everything looks great for a second. And then you leave the room. Those are the patients that kind of like worry me or the patients who have like a very, you don't know what they took. You don't know why they got in that car accident, right? You don't know if that car accident uh, occurred and then they had a head injury. And so there have been times where like we're sitting there on the fence. And one of the things that we'll do when we go to intubate somebody is we'll put them on like uh, some type of pre-ox you know, pathway. Oftentimes we're hooking up our entile CO2 at that time. And there's been several patients where like, we'll hook them up and like, I'll be like, wow, the entitled CO2 is like 55, 60 in this person who's kind of like not really waking up reliably to us. And to me, you can be pretty drunk and still have a respiratory drive. You can have a lot of things go wrong before the physiology that causes you to stop breathing 
kind of fails. And so if you have that patient who's not reliable from that standpoint and has a high end tidal CO2, I think that would get me moving towards this patient's probably not protecting their airway as much. I think in the past, what we used to do is we just shove a yank hour in the back of the throat, see if they gag and be like, ha, high five, they're, they're, they're good <laughs> enough. I think that there's this, there's this gray zone between that and being like, okay, well, maybe we need to be a little more aggressive with like washout. And there's other things we can do in the interim too, but I think that that's kind of an, an up and coming thing that I, I see as we're using it more for the procedural sedation, I think we're going to start using it more for that kind of like altered patient and how good are they really adjusting their airway? Right. I mean, it's, it is such a, at the same time, a completely invisible killer, right? It's like CO2 narcosis, right? Your CO2s are, are, are high. And yet something that historically has been very hard to measure, right? It, it was a, a venous blood gas or an arterial blood gas that you were having to send to understand this. And, you know, to have someone get it measured through a, a side port in something they've already got is a huge move in our ability to measure. And, and I think like most things in medicine, right, we can anticipate that our ability to measure it comes first and our utilization of that measurement then evolves over years and decades. The entitled CO2 is certainly quicker than getting an ABG. Yeah, and less invasive, right? Yeah. And, and we've been sort of uh, up to this point talking about using it as a, a spot check, but uh, you can also uh, uh, monitor over time watch trends and, and whatnot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you definitely like you start to see your end title CO2 come up after your patient's been intubated. Like you slowly are going like up by five points every hour or so. I think you got to really think about like, okay, I'm not adequately ventilating this patient or did this patient have some new problem that led to them, you know, conversely, if it's starting to go down, like you're either overventilating them or, you know, maybe their heart rate's gone up at the same time that all this has happened, like, are they bleeding? Like, is that is that splenic bleed getting bigger or worse or something before they become hypotensive? Yeah, I mean, you could imagine not just these becoming integrated into sort of all of our standard vital signs and monitoring, but even, you know, creating systems that could monitor for those trends and alarm on the end title and, and you know, really move in that direction. It's really, it's, it's, it's cool. It's, it's neat to sort of see this, you know, like I've gotten to the point now in medicine, having been you know, out of residency now for like 11 years or out of, out of medical school for 11 years, medical school. God, how long have I been out? Long time. Anyway, watching these things that like kind of didn't exist, right. Like are starting, you know, not that long ago are starting to become standard of care and, and, and to see this evolution is really cool. It's a treat. In, in need of a disease. <laughs> like, like, yeah, but it seems like we found some diseases, right? Yeah. It's one of those things that I think is, is I, I think you said it best in the very beginning, like, you know, on paper, it's very clean and neat. In the real world, it, it can be frustrating and confusing. But when I'll tell you one thing, man, when you see some of these things that correlate and it triggers that little spark in the back of your head to like look for something, I think there's benefit in that comfort, right? Like none of us like to be kind of like spiraling into like, you know, what is the ultimate problem that's happening? Right. What's wrong here? Why can't I figure out why they're not exactly. doing and, what they're supposed to be doing? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that it does give you like these moments where like you kind of can get a, a little jump on your diagnostic closure. You can kind of understand a little bit more about the patient with the caveat that like sometimes it is frustrating, right? Like I can come up with like a million different reasons why like it could lead you astray, but so. Right. But it is that other, it is another data point and when accurately measured can really tell you something. So like you said, like confirming tube location, you know, like we've always used color metric. And then like at Davis, we have the, the, the inline entitled CO2 also, 
But like, it's one more data point, like for, okay, your tube's in the right spot. You have good ventilator return on your ventilations. You see mist in the tube, like, you know, with all of those things combined, you know, you're, you got the tube in the right spot versus you, you get that, you know, person goes to intubate somebody. They're like, yeah, it's in the right spot. And (laughs) you're getting no end tidal CO2. I think as the trauma surgeon in the back, you'd be like, you guys really sure it's in the right spot. Yeah. Because if it because if you're getting that reading and it's in the right spot, right? Like someone needs to be doing compressions, right? So it's fantastic. Well, thank you both so much. This has been great. I've learned a ton. For for me or for other folks who who are listening to this and think like, oh, this is this is something I want to know more about. Any great resources, you know, online spots that we can throw into the show notes for ways to learn more about this or like go see some of those curves for ourselves. So my go-tos for almost everything, like academic life in EM, A-L-I-E-M, there's the, I think, mcrit.org. Like Scott Weingart is an EM critical care guy who does a lot of stuff. Um, and they deep dive into some of this stuff too. But if you just Google image, like uh, tidal CO2 waveform or stuff like that, I think you'll get like some of these different waveforms and stuff. Awesome. Yeah. We'll, we'll track some stuff down and, uh, and get it in the show notes too, for folks who just want to have a one click to some valuable information. So and, and we only really on this uh, discussion kind of uh, touched the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so it all depends on how much you really want to uh, deep dive. Uh, I know uh, in preparing for this a little bit, I looked at just even up to date, and that's kind of a, a really quick uh, kind of overview of some of its uh, uses. But then again, we're only talking about the uh, kind of the standard entitled uh, CO2. So if you want to start getting into like analysis of waveforms and stuff that Matthew sort of alluded to when he was talking about the uh, uh, the shark fin, you know, where you're telling some of the patients that might have obstructive uh, conditions or whatnot, there's a whole body of literature. And if you want to get into the detection of, let's say, PEs and kind of the volumetric capnography, that's uh, uh, data that's uh, dating back uh, uh, decades. Yeah. I, I could add some stuff in the show notes if you'd like. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll um, we'll put it all in there and, and folks can, can explore. So thank you both so much. This has been great. And I uh, hope we talk again soon. Awesome. Great. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Country Hits, Rural Trauma from the Scene to the Emergency Department, is a production of Wisconsin's South Central Regional Trauma Advisory Council. Go Badgers! If you enjoyed this episode, there are seven more, so check those out too. And please, rate and review the show so others can find it. Most importantly, tell your friends. This podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Kohler, and Ben Ethan, with production assistance from Terry Hoover. It's mixed and edited by the great J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Lori Silverberg and Nicole Jennings at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and to Shin Hiroshi, Diana Farmer, Joe Galante, and Nate Cooperman at the University of California, Davis. And an extra special thanks to Dan Williams and the members of the South Central RTAC for deciding they wanted this podcast and what they wanted it to be about. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. Stay safe out there.